Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 126 bienvenidos bitches buiti binafi and thank you so much for listening fruit loose is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we do not hear or know much about contrary to popular belief not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes no (laughs) there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and fruit loops is a podcast all about them we will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. That's right. Kind of like this. That was a nice podcast. (laughs) So anyway... (laughs) Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website, plus check it out for the different ways that you can support the show. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Corey Dion Morris, a Phoenix, Arizona serial killer and necrophile. Mm. He was active between 2002 and 2003 and known to have at least five victims. This subject was suggested to us by Pamela on Facebook. And uh, I have to warn you, this one's going to get a little graphic, so buckle your seatbelts. Yeah, you've been warned. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> my eyes Take are so under big. advisement. Ooh, so big right now. Uh, how? How? Before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, just you know, 
keeping it going. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're moving along. Yeah. Uh, Christmas is six months away, y'all. Yeah. Uh, we better, better start, <laughs> better start shopping now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I am good. Um, I was just going to say, I've been listening. I, sometimes I take breaks from true crime, um, listening to true crime and, you can do um, that. yeah, yeah, I'm allowed. <laughs> um, but like, I, I love going to sleep to like a good true crime podcast or just like, it helps me relax in all honesty. Like, so the other night I listened to affirmative murder and they were just, one of my favorite is stories of all time is the story of this white lady who raised a chimpanzee and he 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 was wilding her friend came over and she ripped her the the chimpanzee ripped the friend's face off (gasps) ripped ripped the fingers of the lady off oh my and the lady called 911 and I only I shouldn't laugh, but I am a sick fuck, and it is my truth. And I'm I am not I I am just this way. God made me this way. But uh, it it, it the nine one one tape is very disturbing, and uh, the affirmative murder guys did not play it. They just talked about it, and they're so funny <laughs> that I'm trying to sleep like. <laughs> <laughs> laughing so hard so maybe affirmative murder is not the one to listen to when you're trying to sleep huh? I, I i was rethinking it the whole time but it was it was i love going to sleep with a smile on my face and then today i was uh in the dentist chair and i was listening to military murder with mama margo uh-huh. it was so disturbing i mean she warns everybody like multiple times before it got started but she, like i was so excited to be sitting in that dentist chair she was talking about <laughs> details it's just it's just silly his name is robert Kraft, i think uh he was a military guy killed like dozens of people oh my and, god uh uh and she she described i had to rewind it i was like hang on dentist let me rewind this one part uh she described something uh being shoved up somebody's urethra so forcefully oh. that it pierced the person's pelvis oh my and god it sounds it sounds insane. Horrific. Uh, horrific. But like my sick brain was just like, I don't know. It just, it really, it just, it, it I just there's really am into you, it. There's something, I don't know. there's something wrong and uh, blame it on my mom. Anyway, now <laughs> we are going to uh, get into some listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. Ooh, that was nice. Uh, so what's in that bag, Ben? Well, we got a Patreon message from Fran. Hey, Fran. Yeah. And Fran said, hi, Wendy and Beth. I just subscribed to your Patreon after getting sucked into your podcast the last few months. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I am super interested in true crime, but started to get tired of all the white ladies talking about how much they love Ted Bundy. (laughs) Because, of course, we need another podcast about him, right? (laughs) Am I right? (laughs) I'm like, Marsha, 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 Bundy, Bundy, Bundy. I'm a Korean woman fam living in Montana. Shout out to old Whitey's original stomping grounds. Yeah, yeah. And after the Atlanta spa shootings, I needed to change the media I consumed and finding your podcast really helped me during such a dark time. 
An additional shout out to Feeling Asian podcast, which really helped me process my feelings about being Asian during these times. Oh, I'll have thank to you. check that out. Yeah, thank you. I don't think people realize how necessary it is for BIPOC stories to be told, and I'm just so grateful to find your podcast. Aww. Anyways, I appreciate the visibility that you both provide for the victims of color that don't get the attention they deserve. It's so important to have your podcast infiltrating the true crime space with important lessons and conversations on race and equity. Love you both and keep fucking shit up and taking up space. Oh, Fran, black fist in the air and then glory tear down my cheek. Oh my god! And that's my favorite closing to a letter ever. I know. Keep fucking shit up. Well, guess what? We will. <laughs> oh, man, that so was so thank sweet. You, thank you so much, Fran. Thank you for supporting the show and thank you for your 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 words. Yeah, it is important um, to be seen. It's important to have spaces, right? So this we we take pride in the fact that this is a space where we can have conversations and, you know, uh, talk about all these things that are not easy to talk about. Um, and sometimes we make mistakes and um, it's just a place to have a conversation in a safe way and, uh, you know, visibility, all that all that stuff um, is important. So we yeah. are happy to be here for y'all. Um, we got some new patrons everybody <laughs> so um Jacqueline in Vegas and uh Justin in Ohio okay so Jacqueline in Vegas this is this is for you Jacqueline gotta catch them all I know it's my destiny Jacqueline oh <laughs> you're my best friend in a world we must defend Jacqueline gotta catch them all <laughs> And uh, that's because we like Pokemon over here in this house. Uh, And then Justin in Ohio. Okay, so, by the way, Justin, we're just really grateful for you being on our Patreon page. And uh, it's been wonderful interacting with you. Uh, And I just want to, this is special for you. I want you to know you are invited to the cookout. Um, And uh, when you come, we will fix you a plate. So this is for you. Whoa, whoa. Justin in Ohio, I won't be foolish. I want to know. I want to make sure I'm bright, boy. Justin in Ohio. I will never, 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 never let you go, Justin in Ohio. Okay. That was tough. But Justin, that was for you for when you do come to the cookout. Um, And any black people listening, please don't take away my card. I did fuck up that song. I'm very sorry. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to get into the story when we come back. And I'm going to get my shit together. Promise. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com We're back. All right. Okay. Uh, Now, Beth, remind us, who's our subject today? Today we're talking about Corey Dion Morris, who lured at least five women into his camper where he strangled them to death. He kept their decomposing bodies in the camper and continued to have sex with their corpses before dumping them in his neighborhood. Santa Maria. Yes. Okay. Trigger warning. Yeah. (laughs) This is a wild story. Yeah. Um, and it happened in Phoenix. Yep. Right? Okay. Yep. So in our backyard, which is, you know, comforting. Yeah. And crazy because I never heard of this guy before. Right? And this, okay, so we'll get into the, the stats, but um, this is our second serial killer that we've covered in the Phoenix area. Here we go into some <laughs> stats. <laughs> okay. All right, Corey Morris, Corey Dion Morris, uh, a.k.a. Huggy Bear, a.k.a. the crackhead killer. And ugh, I just uh, hate, hate that, that yeah. nickname. Um, and I was just going to say, you know, the, the word crackhead. I mean, it, it, we know what it means, but I think uh, it, it is kind of has kind of a um, negative uh, connotation and is Absolutely. not a kind yeah. a kind way to refer to anybody, especially the victim of a crime. Right. Right. Thank you, OG of true crime. That's what I was <laughs> trying to say, but I'm not all smart with words and stuff. So thank you. Uh, so Corey Morris was born on May 10th, 1978. He is a Taurus and apparently Tauruses are known for being charming and tactful. Uh, and uh, he was a black American serial killer and serial rapist. He, as Beth said, was a necrophile. He had five, at least five victims. Uh, and his crimes took place from 2002 to 2003, which is around the same time, or uh, pre, I guess predates Goudeau. Mark Goudeau yeah, is the other just, serial killer. Just, just a, a few, few years. years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was arrested in April 12, 2003, and his victims were Arrest in Power Queens, Barbara Codman, 46, Shanteria Davis, 32, Jade Velasquez, 33, Sherry Noah, 37, and Julie Castillo, 
39. Uh, Morris also confessed to another murder, that of uh, Janice Irvin, who was 43, but he was never actually charged with that murder. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. The setting is Phoenix, Arizona. Yay! In the city's very recent history, Phoenix was segregated. Phoenix was a place that Black families fled the Jim Crow South for in search of a better life out West. But they soon discovered that there was some deep-rooted racism in Phoenix. Yeah, I thought this... This was surprising history to me. I knew about, I knew, because, hello, Juneteenth. Um, We go to East Lake Park all the time, and there are plaques around the park describing that, you know, East Lake Park, that part town, um, was segregated. So I I heard about it, but getting into the the nitty-gritty was um, really fascinating. So um, Black people couldn't go anywhere north of Van Buren Street unless they were a either a domestic worker or a day laborer in a uniform. The only local restaurant in Phoenix that was not segregated was at the train station. Phoenix public schools were also segregated. Sometimes referred to as Sunbelt Apartheid, people of color were discriminated against both residentially and economically in the early days of the city as people of color were relegated to South Phoenix. Hey, Southside! <laughs> That's where I live now. Yep. And uh, what's interesting is we it's being gentrified, like heavy, heavy. Like all it took yeah. was one white person coming here. And now boom, all of a sudden yeah. our property values are going up and pretty soon we won't be able to afford to live here anyway. <laughs> and like many southern states, Arizona had a law on the books for six decades that required all would-be voters to take an English literacy test first. Okay, fuck you, Arizona. Uh, in Alabama, tests like these were used to disenfranchise black voters. In Arizona, the goal was to keep Spanish speakers from voting as well. And it was only repealed in 1972. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. In the 30s and 40s, white people in the Phoenix area were fearful of black people settling in Arizona. And the state's leadership fanned the flames of fear. For example, Arizona Governor Moore said, quote, as governor of Arizona, I do not suppose to allow this state to be a dumping ground, unquote. Sounds familiar, actually. Yeah, we heard a lot of that uh, in 2015, 2016, 2017. And now, woo, it is the lids popped off. And this this kind of rhetoric seems to be acceptable again. Um, And it's gross. (laughs) It's gross. It's just not okay to discriminate against people um, for any reason, Um, unless they're a murderer. Like, yeah, I don't want murderers in my zip code. Like, that seems like a reasonable way to discriminate <laughs> against people. I don't want yeah. rapists in my zip code. Like, that's totally fine. But on the basis of skin color, yeah, ethnicity, that's... language, come on, no, cool. Not cool. So traveling through Arizona was dangerous for black people because many towns in Arizona were sundown towns. And if you don't know what a sundown town is, welcome to Culture Corner. A sundown town is a town that is not safe for anybody who is not white or or straight, uh, a straight uh, person, mostly mostly for black people. Uh, it's not safe when the sun goes down. You are fair game. They can kill you, rape you, um, rob you, um, beat you, put you in jail once the sun is down. So it is uh, for your safety important to get the 
fuck out of there before the sun sets. Anyway, Scottsdale and Tucson had areas that were restricted for Black people, Jewish people, and Asian people. Fear of violence, but the desire to travel led to the creation of the Green Book. It listed safe places for Black people to go for safe hotels, restaurants, and beauty shops. Most places that allowed Black people were located on Jefferson Street in downtown Phoenix. Uh, yeah, and uh, the Green Book, the movie. Do you, did you ever see it, by the way? I never did because I remember there was a lot of flack about it. Yeah, because uh, well, the Green Book is a real thing, as we said in our show. Um, but movies about racism that Hollywood makes that make white people feel good, I just think are mistakes. Yeah. Uh, because it shouldn't make you feel good because it's still a big problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, it, it was a remarkable invention by Black people. And there is a podcast series called the Green Book, which everybody, um, if you don't know a lot about the Green Book, should really consider listening. I mean, the feat and the effort that it took um, to maintain this book um, was remarkable. And again, it was a matter of life and death. Right. um, Because if a Black person went somewhere where they were not welcome or safe, um, you could be killed. So the Garfield District in Phoenix, where this story takes place, is former farmland. Yes, we have farms in Phoenix. We do. (laughs) Uh, And on the south side, we have a lot of farms and it's not unusual to just see people uh, walking up, going up central with their horses. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, the area is uh, roughly bounded by 7th Street on the west and 16th Street on the east and Van Buren Street on the south and I-10 on the north. So it's this little it's this. It, it looks Square. more like a triangle. Yeah. yeah. Or, or not a triangle. It's a rectangle. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the geography. That's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> the completion of the Roosevelt Dam in 1911 improved the ability to control the waters of the Salt River and establish more irrigation for farming. The impact on Phoenix's population and development was immediate and intense. Hundreds of new families moved to the valley. The Garfield district was close to the city center and accessible by streetcar line. Between the 1910s and the 1920s, approximately 500 houses were built to meet the demands of Phoenix's early population boom. By 1935, 85% of the former farmland had been converted into housing, offering up a selection of bungalow, craftsman, Spanish colonial revival, Tudor, and English cottage-style homes to primarily middle- and working-class families who were all white. Yeah. <laughs> but I do love those old houses and neighborhoods. Uh I know you do. Yeah. We've, yeah, we've talked we've talked about it. we've been around town and, yeah, and I yeah. just I know how much you'd love it, but my yeah. question is always, well, when did they let black people in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not that, it's just the the architecture. Um and I I just love the the history. I don't know. And it just drives me nuts how many people are tearing them down to build McMansions. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm, I hate that. Mm-hmm. I hate yeah. that. Yeah. Anyway, in its heyday, Garfield was a thriving residential development. Not only did the neighborhood give residents direct access to the then-essential Phoenix Street Railway, it also offered an assortment of conveniently located commercial spaces, churches, groceries, and even a pharmacy. After the advent of the automobile, Van Buren Street on the south side of the district became a main thoroughfare known in the 50s for swanky cocktail lounges and motor lodges, where they smoked those jets. Cigarettes. 
I'm just kidding. I don't know if they did that. Uh, anyway, advertising spectacular new in-ground pools, a convenience to those traveling U.S. highways 70, 80, and 89, all of which intersected Van Buren. But in the mid-1950s, the I-10 freeway was planned and laid out, which ran right through the neighborhood. The freeway was hotly contested, but construction began and it eradicated entire blocks, disrupting the fabric and tranquility of the remaining neighborhood. Right. So we started out the story talking about how Black people were segregated to this part of town. And then the freeway was built entirely over it. And then do you talk about Chase Field? No, but it's right down the street. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Chase Field also contributed to the elimination of um, housing for Black people uh, in this part of town. But... Uh, fast forward, by the time of our story in 2002, many of the homes in the Garfield district had fallen into disrepair and historic storefronts sat abandoned. The neighborhood where the bodies were found was one of Phoenix's roughest, um, an area with a reputation for drugs and gang violence and just uh, blocks from Van Buren Street. And Van Buren Street is that, what do they say? That's uh, that's where the ladies of the night. Yes. Um, there's a lot of sex work and um, people struggling, uh, which had become Phoenix's uh, red light district. So now we are going to get into Corey Dean Morris's early life. Hit it, Biff. Well, we don't know much about his early life, but Corey Dion Morris was born on May 10th, 1978 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He was the first of three children and had a younger brother and sister. According to a childhood friend, Corey was raised by a tight-knit working-class family next door to a military base. I was just thinking, I am going to have a hard time getting through this script saying Dion and not following it with Warwick. Corey Dion Warwick, but it's not. It's not. No. The one and only Dion Warwick, everybody. The psychic hotline. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, childhood friends remembered him as a sweet kid. The only trouble that a neighbor could recall Corey getting into involved a BB gun and a streetlight. We've we've heard of this BB gun thing before with serial killers in the past. Uh, But typical kid stuff. Uh, As a teenager attending Douglas High School, he got straight A's and was in the ROTC. Uh, He also helped with charities and collected canned goods for victims after the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, One childhood friend described him as, quote, gentlemanly, unquote. After he moved to Arizona, and we're not sure when that was, he went back to Oklahoma City to visit friends in 2000. At that time, he wore a military uniform and told people he was in the Army. He seemed to have some sort of obsession with the military, but he was never in the Army as far as we know. Maybe he was in the Lord's Army. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know how religious he was, but I imagine if he was Black, you know, he had had to have a little bit of religion in there, right? That's um, the black church. Uh, right. It's hard to survive right. in the United States as a black person without the church. Um, but uh, so Jesse Collins, who lived next door to Morris in Phoenix and whose house uh, four of the bodies were eventually found next to. Yikes. Sorry, Mr. <laughs> Collins. Described him as friendly and outgoing. Another woman who lived on the other side of Morris built a 10-foot cement fence after a third body was found in the alley behind her house. But she never suspected Morris. She, she was just like, uh-oh, another body. Better <laughs> another add more body. bricks to my brick wall here. Yeah. Right? Keep, uh, keep those bodies out. Keep those bodies out of here. <laughs> She said, quote, Corey was cool. He used to play with the kids and throw the football over the wall. It never clicked to me, unquote. His co-workers called him Huggy Bear, 
because he was so nice. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> so weird. It's really a creepy thing to call a person, I I think. Um, I, I don't know. And maybe it's because we've been in a pandemic for the past 15 months. The idea of hugging, hugging somebody, someone. a huggable person, <laughs> I'm just not even interested. <laughs> I don't want to hug anybody for the rest of my life except for Oprah Winfrey and my two kids. Other than that, I don't need any hugs ever. Uh, keep hugging bear to yourself. So now we're going to get into the timeline. So in the summer of 2002, Morris was living in Phoenix in the Garfield district. He was living out of a camper in the backyard of Melba and Ron Willis's house, his aunt and uncle. What you talking about, Willis? So according to his aunt, he just slept in the camper but used their house for everything else. He had nowhere to live, and the Willises just didn't have room in their house for him. He was working at a local bar called Fat Cats approximately three nights a week, running the karaoke machine. In many articles, he's referred to as a karaoke DJ. Mm. So I'm not really sure... If he was like talking into a microphone or if he was just putting on the music. But in any case, that's what I he was just, doing. I can just picture coming to the stage. Uh, <laughs> welcome to Fat Cats, everybody. You've done karaoke, haven't you? Hell yeah. Yeah. Hey, it, you? Come on, Beth. Yes. I don't know if you know yes. this, everybody, but Beth can sing. <laughs> she just hides it. <laughs> not not as well as you can. No. But... <laughs> did you hear what I did at the beginning of this show? I'm embarrassed for our patrons. I hope they don't hate us. <laughs> Unsubscribe. Well, Give yeah. me all my well, money we'll back. we'll find out when they take <laughs> yeah. all their money back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they usually do talk into a microphone. Yeah, yeah usually a karaoke, uh, like a karaoke DJ, dream job alert, they <laughs> have so much personality and have a lot of fun, right? You can't right. run all that equipment and manage all those people and like keep everybody hype, ordering drinks and participating if you don't have like a like a upbeat personality. You know right, what I mean? Like right. you gotta you gotta lay on the charm. So yeah, he's he's like an outgoing guy, mm-hmm, friendly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Jimmy Seagrave, the owner of Fat Cat, said of Morris, quote, he would always come to work early and stay late. He even took the trash out at night so the girls wouldn't have to go outside. He was a gentleman and never picked up on the girls, unquote. Wow. He was a gentleman. Um, but wait. Karen Seagrave, who worked with Morris at her husband's Phoenix bar, said Morris was a, quote, really, really nice guy who smelled bad, end quote. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, so, quote, my husband confronted him about it, and he, he being Morris, said it was from walking to work in the heat, unquote. Now, I totally get that, Right. It is so hot here. It is, yeah. <laughs> and you could get so sweaty. And if you don't have the right antiperspirant, you're in trouble. And the yeah. people around you, their noses are in trouble. <laughs> Seagrave said that Morris lied to co-workers about military service, but he was trusted and frequently left alone with a female bartender after closing. Quote, he stayed with her to make sure she got to her car safe and all that, unquote. I'm wondering if, I mean, he was in ROTC. That doesn't count as military service. Right. It doesn't? I don't know. I don't make the rules. I don't think so. Oh, I'm just wondering. Ma- Mama Margo, are you listening? Will you help us? Uh- <laughs> I think if you're in the ROTC, then it's looked on as favorable if you want to go into the military. Yeah. But I don't think it counts for anything other okay. than that. 
but okay. I don't really know. I, I'm either. just pulling that out of my butt. Yeah, I, it's it's not something I could ever be a part of. I don't like being told what to do. Did I ever tell you I was in Civil Air Patrol? Shut the fuck <laughs> up. For about six months, and it was no. the most miserable time of my life. <laughs> Wait a minute. Did you want to be in the Air Force? Who made you do that? Why? <laughs> I was like 13 years old, and uh, I don't know. It sounded like fun. <laughs> oh, what part? And you know what? Some of it was fun because uh, um, we went camping, and okay. um, we did, we went on searches. Uh, like there was a missing kid, and we searched for the kid. And What? Uh, yeah, yeah. What? We looked. We looked for dead bodies. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Oh well, that's worth the price of admission there. Uh, but all the wow. military stuff, all the uh, you know marching and because yeah, they bullshit. have to wear uniforms and yeah. march and like sh- show up places on time. I and don't know. I was one of like maybe three girls, and uh, wow. it was okay. Beth, badass alert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except for there was a lot of sexual harassment, and I was thirteen years old. So. No! Yeah. Oh no. Oh, so, I was gonna say Beth Tough Gal over here. Look at <laughs> it. Wouldn't have been so bad if if not for that. You know. Really? Yeah, were there that women? Was the worst were there women part. leaders in leadership to like no. look out for you guys? No. Nope. Oh my god. It was all men and uh, mostly boys, and uh, the boys were not nice. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I can yeah. only imagine. I'm sorry for oh, well. young Beth who had to go through that. Did now did you ever find any bodies? No, we didn't find any bodies. Okay, just just asking but you. You brought it up so I I, just was I personally jacking. did not find any bodies, but okay. I did go on searches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's my my dream right? i know okay, i know so, so i don't want to okay. you know take that away from you it's okay it's still there <laughs> it's still there in my brain and in my heart um where are we whoa okay there we are so according to an article in the new times by the way shout out to jensen and holes who's the younger one billy jensen yeah he used to work at the new times he said yeah yeah uh so the new times in 2009 the grand avenue merchants association opposed the transfer of a liquor license to Jim Seagrave, who was attempting to move fat cats from the Garfield district to Grand Avenue. According to the association, quote, when Mr. Seagrave previously held the license for the fat cats bar, his bar was a source of constant problems for the neighborhood. A number of known and recognizable prostitutes and drug dealers not only frequented the establishment on a regular basis, but appeared to conduct their business openly, both in front of the premises as well as in the parking lot there. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's uh, it's not ideal, right, if you're trying to run a business for these kinds of activities to go on. But I mean, people are engaging in these in sex work and doing drugs. It was the neighborhood. Yeah, it, it is the neighborhood. But it's one of those neighborhoods that's under resourced. Right. Right. Neighborhoods in Scottsdale don't have problems like this because yeah. they're adequately funded. They have adequate resources and they are not over policed. All right. I'm done. I'll shut up. Uh, so reports of regular interior did you hear me step down off my soapbox yes i did it was like yeah yeah i did (laughs) Uh, so reports of regular interior criminal activity have also been made by old patrons of the bar people in the neighborhood were afraid to walk by that location because of the witnessed activity taking place there and in close proximity on a regular basis unquote of note however one of the women on the association owned a bar on grand avenue so take that for whatever it's worth yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> not much. <laughs> On July 14th, 2002, the body of Janice Irvin, 43, was discovered a few blocks from the Willis home. Morris later said Janice Irvin died after the two had sex in his camper. He didn't detail how she died, but said he put her body in a shopping cart and dumped her in a nearby alley. Speaking of shopping carts, did you know that, so there are a lot of shopping carts, and maybe I I'm, I'm see this more because I live on the South Side. South Side bitches don't fuck with me. So if you, if there are uh, grocery carts around you and you turn them in, you can get $25 per grocery cart. Per grocery cart? Yeah. Wow. Maybe I should steal grocery carts and then bring them back. Time to leave my nine to five. <laughs> I'm starting a new business. Uh, so in uh, September of 2002, Morris was walking one night when he met a woman named Barbara Codman, who was 46. Barbara is remembered as someone who was inquisitive. Uh, she liked to sit and talk with others and soaked up every word, um, according to a friend. And uh, she was funny and she had a heart of gold. Barbara had recently been released from jail and was taking medication for an addiction to heroin. She missed her daughter and wanted a closer relationship with her sister. Although she did serve time, she believed in right and wrong and treating people with respect. A friend described her as naively innocent and said, quote, she trusted people and always believed in the best in them, unquote. So after Barbara and Corey Dion Morris, not Warwick, met uh, on the street, Barbara agreed to come to Morris's camper and have sex with him for money. She uh, here she, we we should note that later when Morris was questioned and admitted to knowing the victims, he provided two different versions of each of their deaths to the police. In each of the first ver- versions, he said uh, that each victim had died of a drug overdose. By the way, there's this new show on uh, on FX. It's called uh, Kevin King Buck himself. <laughs> What? <laughs> it is so good. It's it's like kind of like a sitcom mixed with Breaking Bad. And it's this married woman and she, her, she's in like a, a her, her life is really challenging because her husband's a fucking idiot, wastes all their money. She's working hard and he's just like drinking beer and passing out in the rose bushes out front. That sounds like my marriage. <laughs> Oh my god so she's think she's trying to kill him and she's trying to get oxy like a bunch of oxycodone this it's funny because it's tv she is trying to she wants to make it look like a drug overdose i don't know what's going to happen i only watched one episode but anyway this made me think of that that how it <laughs> because right this is um i think this would be a, a good way to try to kill somebody and get away with it is make it look like a drug overdose, overdose. No? yeah yeah okay i'm sorry <laughs> When told that his story was not believable, Morris changed tack, claiming that each victim asked him to choke her during sex and then accidentally died as a result. Wow. <laughs> it ha- but it happened more than once, though. Yeah, Bruh. every every single time. Yeah. Ew. So I, I personally don't believe either version, but uh, we'll provide you with them as we go through each case. Here we go. So Morris first said that he went outside after he and Barbara had sex. And when he returned, Barbara was sitting naked on the bed using drugs drugs doing drugs uh so he told her to leave after she finished and then he left when he went back barbara was sitting on the bed panting and she soon collapsed however in his second version of events morris claimed that barbara asked him to choke her with a necktie during sex he did so and she collapsed and never regained consciousness in any case at some point morris dragged barbara out of the camper on a sleeping bag he kept some of barbara's belongings including her overalls underwear and purse analysts later found 
Barbara's DNA on some of these items. He never contacted any authorities to nope. help. Never provided any CPR nope. or life-saving assistance. None of that. Just a sleeping bag dragged outside. And the and, alley. Yeah. Uh, so on September 11th, 2002, police discovered Barbara Codman's naked, decomposed body in an alley just north of Morris's residence. September is really fucking hot. It's in, in it's Phoenix. It's still pretty hot, and it's yeah. Still, it's monsoon season still, I think. No, right? Um, It's the, like the tail end of it, yeah. Yeah. So police found uh, drag marks from the sidewalk crossing the alley and into the alley itself. Barbara's body exhibited skin slippage on her inner thighs and breasts rest and her head and neck were more decomposed than the rest of her body. Skin slippage occurs when in the post-mortem phase, bacteria destroys connections between the skin and the underlying tissue so that with pressure and movement, the skin begins to detach and slip off of the body. I'm smiling very big right now only because I really <laughs> like that description. I'm I'm really sorry that I'm like this, okay? So because Barbara's head and neck showed extensive decomposition, the forensic pathologist was unable to conduct a detailed investigation for trauma in that region. So initially, Barbara's cause of death was determined to be combined toxicity of morphine and cocaine, with the manner of death listed as undetermined because the circumstances surrounding Barbara's death were suspicious. Later, after the police gave the pathologist a transcript of Morris's statements, he determined that the cause of death is most likely asphyxia due to ligature strangulation because the autopsy results were not inconsistent with such a determination. I was thinking if perhaps the, the strangulation might have been a good explanation as to why there was the disparity in the decomposition of the face and yes, head and absolutely. the rest of her body. Hello, yep. science. Uh, so where are we? I just love it when science comes through. In October, Morris met a woman named Shantaria Davis. Unfortunately, we couldn't find anything about Shantaria. Uh, Morris said that uh, Shantaria agreed to come back to his camper and have sex with him that night for money. After they had sex, Morris left Shantaria alone in the camper for about an hour because she wanted to use drugs. He, this part of his story is weird, right? It, he just leaves, leaves the woman in his place where he's camper in his to do camper drugs. and he goes where where are you he going goes, he goes somewhere else okay. for some reason okay um because i guess if he's not there it's not his fault right? right right that's what my third grader would say exactly okay yeah <laughs> when morris returned shantaria was unconscious but breathing morris covered her and left for his friend's house when he returned the next morning shantaria was dead in his second version of events, Morris claimed that Shantaria asked him to wrap her hair extensions around her neck while they were having sex and that Shantaria died as a result. That's a likely story. It's wild. And I wouldn't have given it any thought, but I just, for my birthday this weekend, I love horror movies. And I, I just binged a bunch of horror movies for my birthday. And one of them was, it's called Bad Hair. It's a horror noir. So a horror movie <laughs> about black black people. And it's a weave. It's a weave that kills people. And the weave, the weave 
chokes people uh, to death. It, it, and I mean, I never would have thought of that a hair being a weapon until this movie. And now, and now it's in the story, story we're covering this week. Oh what my god! Every, everybody was killed by hair extensions. Look, it, I'm telling that were you, possessed by <laughs> demons. If 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 he had said, if I'm telling you, it it's believable now only because I saw it in cinematic form. Uh, so, uh, but but we know that Corey Dion Morris is a big fat liar. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha, Huggy Bear. So that <laughs> night, he dragged her into the alley on October tenth, two thousand two. Almost a month later, to the day after Barbara's body was found, police found Chantaria Davis's naked, decomposed body in the same alley. The same alley. Chantaria also had skin slippage on her back, buttocks, and the backs of her legs. Police again found drag marks in the alley. Alley, but they didn't know where the marks came from. Where do they point to? Where yeah, do they lead? Oh, come on. <laughs> Is there a detective around here? <laughs> Jesus. Because of the extent of the decomposition, Dr. Kevin Horn, whose name I mentioned because uh, he testified at the Jody Arias trial. Did he? <laughs> yeah. And women just swooned for him. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. I don't He's remember a him. Pretty good looking guy. Yeah. Is he? Okay. He's a oh. forensic pathologist. <laughs> okay, Dr. Kevin. <laughs> uh, I'm just, I am like, I am turned on only because I can imagine the stories that Dr. Kevin <laughs> Horn tell. could tell me. <laughs> Say forensic again. <laughs> Say skin slippage. Mm-mm. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, he performed Shantaria's autopsy, but could not determine whether Shantaria suffered any trauma. Based on the lack of visible trauma and the presence of cocaine and cocaine breakdown products in her spleen, Horn determined that the cause of death was cocaine intoxication. However, later, after reviewing a transcript of Morris's statements to the police, Horn stated that nothing in his autopsy was inconsistent with strangulation. The proximity to Codman's and Irvin's body and the similarities in their deaths caught investigators' attention, and they became alarmed. Police were not sure whether what was seen as unrelated accidental drug overdoses were related, but murder by cocaine seemed an expensive and imprecise way to kill. Okay, I'm sorry. Do you guys need help? Opioids would, would yeah. work better. Yeah. Jeez Louise. It almost seems lazy. Yeah. Yeah, right? Um, yeah. Uh, murder by cocaine. Eh. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, they, yeah. they didn't really, uh, it doesn't seem like they cared that much about these people. No, they did not. That's very evident. Um, And uh, so in November, detectives started passing out flyers at halfway houses, churches and markets in the neighborhood and warning women in the city's prostitution diversion program. Sex workers in the area speculated that it was the work of a serial killer and they were on guard. And shout out to the sex workers in in the community who were probably looking out for each other. Right. Um, Morris was never questioned by police during this time. In February of 2003, Morris said that Jade Velasquez, a friend of his, agreed to come to his camper for sex. Unfortunately, we don't know anything about Jade. Morris claimed that Jade was drunk when she arrived at the camper and passed out before having sex with him. And he only realized that Jade was dead when she did not wake up the next morning. He then left for the day, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> and well, he, moved... <laughs> I was going to say, maybe he had to hit the turntables at the <laughs> DJ booth. <laughs> and he moved her body to the street that night. 
In his second version of events, Morris claimed that Jade asked him to use his hands to choke her while they were having sex. All these women want to be choked while having sex. I mean, it really it does help with uh, intensity, yeah. right? <laughs> um, but I, I seriously doubt all these women in a row were asking him to. It would be strange. <laughs> it would be strange. So, but Morris said he did so, and then Jade passed out and never regained consciousness. And also, I would think if you are like into choking, that you would have a safe word. Right. Um, you would know CPR and resuscitative measures. Uh, but none of that took place uh, when Morris was involved. So Morris put Jade's clothes back on before he so she's dead. He puts her clothes back on, then drags her to the street because he knew her and he did not want to leave her in the street unclothed. So that's an interesting element. It really is. He did say he described her as a friend. So. Right. Right. Uh, so he, he she's the only one that he put clothes on her before f- he put out on the street. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to say this again because I am who I am. I have thought about killing people. Have we? Am I the only one? Like you've no, never been. I'm sure everybody's yeah, had everybody's... Have thought every once in a while. Yeah. 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 Um, And I've but I've never thought about killing like a friend. You know, I, it, somebody cuts me off in traffic. Oh, right. I, 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 I could kill that person right now. Or just um, somebody that you have really, like, bad feelings about. Yeah. Not, not I, a friend. Not a friend. Um, yeah. And I certainly wouldn't, I couldn't imagine hurting somebody who was my friend and then not doing anything about it afterwards. Like, whoop. Whoops. Yeah. You know, dust 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 off and move about move about my life, go about my business. Right. Or just leaving the body there and going to work and then, you know. It's it's almost I can't compute. Yeah. Uh, so anyway. uh, definitely cannot compute. Yeah. No. <laughs> On February twenty seventh, two thousand and three, police discovered the clothed body of Jade Velasquez on the west side of Ninth Street under a palm tree just outside the gate leading to the backyard. Where Ooh. Morris's camper was located. <laughs> right there, man. Yeah. Hello. Right a detective. What does a <laughs> detective need, do like, again? Investigate homicides? Pointing. <laughs> Jesus. Like, check out the dude Christ. living in the camper. <laughs> they said there was drag marks. Didn't they say yeah. that? Didn't they say that? <laughs> and didn't they say <sighs> that the bodies were in the same place? <laughs> Jade had ligature marks on the front and sides of her neck and bruising under her left eye. So police noted some disturbances in the ground near the gate to the backyard, (laughs) which was consistent with removing the gate from its hinge and then replacing it. Wow, guys. So police also noted grass scuff marks on the sidewalk indicated that the body had been dragged. A detective, we should not call them that, a messy hoe spoke with (laughs) Morris's aunt during the investigation of Jade Velasquez's death. DNA from semen on a vaginal swab taken from Velasquez's body was later matched to Morris's DNA. Petrichial hemorrhages were found in her left eye and focal hemorrhage areas were found inside her neck. So the cause of death was determined to be strangulation. In March of 2003, Morris first stated that he met Sherry Elizabeth Noah, 37, while out walking. Sherry had the mental age of about a 10 or 11-year-old. According to friends and family, Sherry had an infectious laugh and a great sense of humor, and she brought people joy. She was kind, sensitive, and giving. 
She was beloved by many family, friends, and neighbors, and she was survived by her mother and four sisters. It should be noted that her family has expressed dissatisfaction with the way Sherry was portrayed in the media. They even spelled her name wrong in the sources that I found, so uh, not surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, so Morris claimed that after they met in the street, uh, the two went back to his camper and had sex. Again, this is all according to Morris. Afterwards, and it's weird that they took... Uh, um, his his word, you know, um, for it and published it like the stories went with it. But I, I mean, I'm hoping this is actually this was in the court records like it was just what he said. And it was very clear mm-hmm. that this is what he said. OK, yeah, good. So afterwards, Morris left because Sherry wanted to use drugs and then he returned. When he returned, Sherry was dead. Morris then put a belt. Wait, wait. She was dead. So then Morris put a belt around her neck and pulled her body into his sleeping bag. He then dragged her body outside that night and threw away most of her clothes, but kept her shoes. What's that about? (laughs) I don't know. But in his second version of events, Morris said that Sherry suggested that he use the nylon strap attached to Morris's gym bag to choke her during sex. Morris did so, but when Sherry's eyes closed, he stopped and noticed that she was no longer breathing. Morris left the strap on Sherry's neck until he dragged her outside. I just don't understand where his head is at. On March 29th, 2003, again, almost a month to the day since the last body, uh, police found Sherry's naked body on the west side of 9th Street, across the street from a church, a block away from a school, and approximately 15 to 20 feet from the location at which Velasquez's body was discovered. There were ligature marks on Noah's neck and skin slippage on her inner thighs, breasts, and hips. Some maggots were present on her body and her hand and foot were mummified. (gasps) So uh, that indicates that she's actually been dead for a while. Yeah. Some of Noah's artificial fingernails were broken. DNA and panties found in Morris's camper were later found to match both Morris's and Sherry's DNA profiles. And Morris's DNA profile matched DNA on a vaginal swab taken from Sherry. Police also found broken fingernails in Morris's camper. Sherry's autopsy indicated that she died of ligature strangulation resulting in asphyxia. Toxicology reports showed that Sherry had used cocaine before her death and that although she had GHB in her system, the so-called date rape drug, drug overdose was not the cause of death. When asked how he could explain the extensive skin slippage on Noah's thighs, the medical examiner posited that some item may have contacted her thighs post-mortem. In April of 2003, Morris said he brought a woman named Julie Castillo back to his camper because it was cold and she needed a place to spend the night. Morris left the camper after Castillo asked if she could smoke crack. And when he returned, Castillo was unconscious on the floor. He took her clothes off because uh, she had urinated on herself. The next day he went to work and when he returned, he realized that Castillo was dead. Morris stayed in the camper that night. When the detective conducting the interview asked whether Morris engaged in any sexual activity while Castillo's body was in the camper, Morris stated that he ejaculated in his sleep but was facing away from Castillo's body at the time. Whoa. (laughs) Morris originally said that he never had sex with Castillo. What? Wow. Oh my, I, I don't have 
any words. I can't even think of any response. I ejaculated away from her dead body. Right. In the same... Wow. Uh, Wow. I'm sorry. I just can't. I can't even move on. In his second version of events, Morris stated that Castillo asked him to choke her with a necktie during sex. Morris did so, and Castillo collapsed and never regained consciousness. Morris kept Castillo's body in his camper for approximately five days before it was discovered. He claimed that he had not been in the camper during the three days before the body's discovery. By the way, if a dead body, because he was stinky, right? Right. Does the stink from a dead body follow you? Yeah. I mean, if if he's sleeping in the camper and there's a dead body in there that smells, it's going to get like all in his clothes and mm. uh, and everything. And I think that um, people who work with bodies or crime scenes and stuff, they they've talked about how it can like make your skin stink, too. Whoa, that's intense. Yeah. Five bodies, those of Janice Irvin, Barbara Codman, Shantaria Davis, Jade Velasquez, and Sherry Noah, were found within two blocks of the RV where Moore stayed. Four of the bodies, three of them nude, were found beside Jesse Collins' home in the Garfield District. That's the lady we talked about at the beginning. That's right. At the time, Police Sergeant Randy Force stated, quote, This is one of the most unusual cases I've seen in my 20-plus years here. We think there's some kind of link among the deaths. We just don't know what the link is, unquote. All right. Uh, this is messy hoedness at its finest. So let's come on, come on with Beth and Wendy as we tell you about the investigation and the arrest. It was in April of 2003 that Morris's boss started noticing that Morris had a body odor problem. Morris's aunt and uncle also noticed that Morris had a body odor problem that had become progressively worse since he began living with them in the summer of 2002. On April 12, 2003, when Morris's uncle went to the camper to find Morris, he smelled a rotten odor in the backyard and saw flies inside 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 that's oh my god you know these images that people have been posting of cicadas the cicadas go nuts on the east coast that's what i imagine like (laughs) so as he opened the door and stepped inside he saw flies and maggots quote boiling on the floor unquote Oh, my God. That's so gross. Oh, my God. He then discovered the decomposed body of Julie Castillo under a blanket. Oh, my God. Help us, Lord. (laughs) We unfortunately don't have any information about Julie Castillo except that her family organized a memorial service for her. Her badly decomposed body was face down and her buttocks were near the camper's fold-down bed. There was a Winnie the Pooh necktie around her neck. The forensic pathologist determined, that took my breath away, the forensic pathologist determined that Castillo had been dead between three and seven days at the time that the body was found. The cause of death was listed as, quote, probable ligature strangulation. But because of the extensive decomposition, there was no visible evidence of trauma. Seven defects measuring up to three-eighths of an inch radiated around Castillo's anus. But the pathologist could not determine whether the defects resulted from trauma or normal decomposition. On the same day that Julie was found, Morris was arrested at the Fat Cat's bar where he was working. When Morris was arrested, he was carrying Barbara Codman's social security card, driver's license, and check card in his wallet. 
Police found hair extensions in Morris's camper. Remember, Morris mentioned hair extensions in relation to Shantaria Davis's death. Yep. Additionally, the DNA under Shantaria's fingernails matched Morris's DNA, and DNA analysis on panties found in Morris's camper could not exclude Shantaria as the source of the DNA. You know, you know the vibes. You know what happened. You know what it, what time it is when yeah. DNA shows up. Uh, so police questioned Morris about the body in his camper. Don't ask me no questions about anybody's anywhere near me. I mean, I just excuse me. We would like to ask you a few questions about the dead body in your camper. That's uh, oh, you know with all the maggots and the flies. Have a seat. Would you like some tea as well? <laughs> so they asked him about the other bodies that had been found nearby. During this interview, Morris admitted to knowing the victims, and aside from Janice Irvin, provided two versions of each victim's death. As we discussed in the first versions, he claimed that each victim died of a drug overdose while he was away from the camper. But after the detective conducting the interview told Morris that he did not believe him, Morris then claimed that each victim asked him to choke her during sex and that each had accidentally died as a result. Morris also claimed that he used a condom during sex with the victims. But, you know... There was DNA everywhere. Right. I just keep, can't get the boiling, like boiling <laughs> the maggots. maggots. Oh, my God. Uh, so Morris is believed to have slept in the same bed with the corpse, which had been decomposing for at least three days before it was found. And according to former Phoenix police detective Cliff Jewell, quote, he had a woman in there for over a month and she was dead and he was having sex with her, unquote. Uh, so now we're going to get into the trial. What do you got, Beth? Prior to trial, Morris declined to participate in IQ testing or psychological evaluation. The prosecutor was Juan Martinez. Uh-oh! <laughs> the same guy who prosecuted Jody Arias and who recently got into a lot of hot water. And he was disbarred in 2020 after sexual harassment and unprofessional conduct allegations. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it went to his head, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so in 2005, Morris was tried for the murders of Barbara Codman, Shantaria Davis, Jade Velasquez, Sherry Noah, and Julie Castillo. He was never tried for the murder of Janice Irvin. During the trial, Martinez argued that Morris murdered the victims in order to have sexual intercourse with their corpses. The prosecution relied in part on the skin slippage on selective parts of the victims' bodies as evidence that Morris engaged in intercourse with the corpses. The medical examiners testified that skin slippage can result from friction and the general decomposition process. DNA evidence showed that Morris's semen was present. Mm-mm-mm. DNA. I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> During the trial, Martinez took Julie Castillo's jacket out of the evidence bag and displayed it for the jury. During this time, he made an offhand comment about how the jacket was taken out for, quote, your smelling pleasure, end quote. <laughs> this was later used on appeal as evidence of prosecutorial misconduct, but the appeal was dismissed. During closing arguments for his 2005 trial, it was reported that Morris had asked a courtroom deputy to handcuff him because he was so enraged by the case prosecutor that he worried he could not restrain himself. I I really don't know what is going on in this man's head. 
said. <laughs> I he can't restrain himself. He's killed. I mean, I oh, I don't even know what to say. Uh, the jury found Morris guilty, good on all five counts during the penalty phase of the trial. It was found that he committed all five murders in especially cruel and especially heinous or depraved manner. Morris's mitigation evidence focused on the responsibilities placed on him at a young age. And I, I couldn't find more information about what that was about. Yeah. His problems with his appearance and hygiene and particularly his problems with body odor, his desire to improve himself and his good work record. But Morris was sentenced to death. He stared silently ahead as his death verdicts were read. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Well, Morris is currently on death row at the Arizona State Prison Complex in Florence. Uh, His work assignment in prison is listed as a kitchen helper. Morris was looked at as a suspect in a series of murders that occurred in Lawton, Oklahoma, because of a few similarities in the cases and because Morris was living in Oklahoma at the time. But he was ultimately ruled out as a suspect after two more women were murdered in the same manner after Morris was jailed. Hell of an alibi. Yeah. So now we're going to get into our takeaways, Beth. Now, I can't wait. What do you got? Because this, I am baffled. <laughs> Woo, yeah, this, this one is a crazy one yeah. and uh, kind of gross. Yes. <laughs> yes, so much. So our, our fruity Pamela, who suggested this case, mentioned uh, in a post on Facebook uh, that a rumor that Morris's mom was a mortician and that he was used to playing around dead bodies. But uh, we didn't find any evidence to support those claims. Although, who knows? But uh, his family was described as working class, which I would assume would not include a mortician. But I don't don't really know. Well, I was just going to say, in uh, due to segregation, there are a lot of funeral homes throughout the United States that cater ju- that cater mostly to black people because uh, black people couldn't share cemeteries with white people, right. or um, uh, after uh, uh, you know death practices and services with with white people, even death was segregated. So maybe in Oklahoma, I mean, I like I it's like possible. this part of the story. Yeah, but, yeah, but, that's, but <laughs> I want it to be true. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, I I couldn't find anything uh, yeah. about his mom, so could Sorry not to verify that. Pamela, mm-hmm. do apologize. Mm. Most of the cases uh, we've covered that included necrophilia involved people who were socially awkward, possibly suffering from attachment disorders, that right. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But this guy was not described as like a a loner he was described as friendly outgoing a teddy bear all that stuff Mm -hmm. um but uh that doesn't mean he wasn't lonely um it sounds like maybe he did not have many close friends Mm -hmm. um he lied about being in the military. He may have formed a fascination with the military when his family lived next to a military base. But that's something else that I found interesting about this case. Why lie about being in the military? Why not go into the military? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's possible that he tried and was rejected because he was uh, too fucked up in the head. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I yeah I I feel like uh his his um his mental status and capacity are a mystery in this case yeah and it would be and so he's not illuminating. talking it would make I know please yeah. I mean I hate Pierce Morgan's guts but if he gets an interview I might watch it 
<laughs> so he was living in his aunt and uncle's camper in their yard, only working three days a week, running a karaoke machine. So it, it does sound like he was inadequate. And I mean that in the psychological sense. The uh, definition is ineffectual in response to emotional, social, intellectual, and physical demands in the absence of any obvious mental or physical deficiency. So um, well, this I'm, is... I've never heard... Thank you, OG. Never heard of that before? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. So um, he just, you know, there's there's some, something ain't right, basically. Something, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something ain't right. Look at this woman over here. Yes. Something ain't right. Now, something ain't right. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Yep. Yeah, I can I can get with that. I, I know exactly what that means. <laughs> and this is just speculation, but maybe Janice Irvin's death was accidental. Ah, oh, he didn't okay. provide two stories for her death, right? Um, and maybe after he killed her, he kept her body for a little bit and found out that uh, he liked it, and he liked it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, then he started killing. Um, he was never tried for her murder, but he did confess to it. So I, I'm pretty sure he did it. <laughs> and she's the one. Who, she was his friend. Is that the one he, he kept? No, close? she was the very first one. OK, OK. Yeah. Got you. Got you. Again, just speculation on my part. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then something else that I found interesting is that he always denied the accusations of necrophilia, even though it's pretty <sighs> obvious that it happened with the skin slippage and, and yeah. all that. Yeah. We see you. We see you behind that tree. <laughs> you know, that they would find the bodies and the bodies were obviously they the people had been dead for much longer than yeah. uh, when they found the body so it had to be kept somewhere um, right so yeah mummified bruh come on now <laughs> uh jeez yeah you know i um i'm just uh, I, where his head is i i wish not I a knew. clue yeah not a clue yeah that would lead somebody to um, be as charming as he was and as likable as he was. Huh? <laughs> Taurus season, right? Uh, Tauruses are charming and um, uh, what, what, what? I can't remember the, but, but, uh, good qualities, right? Uh, and he was likable. Huggy bear, come on now. I'm yeah. not hugging him myself, but it sounds like it was a pleasant. He was a pleasant individual. Right. No trauma to speak of. Uh, no, in his none of the neighbors days. suspected him. They all right. thought he was a great guy. Yeah, right, right. And uh, it's just really it. Uh, there's just so many question marks. I can't imagine what uh, would. Um, possess him to hurt his friends um and to have sex with their with the bodies um and especially if he wasn't really like we've seen before with necrophiles who people are who are afraid of rejection right he was right. people liked him um and then but uh I, it could be that girls didn't mm, yeah maybe yeah maybe. and and he Although he was friendly and talkative and all that stuff, it's it doesn't seem like he made like connections, meaningful with connections. People. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. right. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm never gonna uh, boiling maggots on the floor. <laughs> I'm yeah, just never oh, going God. to. That is never going to leave my brain. How can you sleep in a camper like, like that? Like I yeah, I mean uh, I don't I don't know if it made a sound, but it in my in my brain it it's makes like, a noise. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh my God. Woo. 
Uh, and um, I'll take a shower. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. And I, I, before you said whatever smart word you said about um, what what is it uh, inadequate? Yeah. I I was like, oh, is this antisocial personality disorder? Right. Like he doesn't really care about doing bad things to other people. Um, or, or like, like he doesn't feel bad for doing bad things. Uh, right. Right. Which is, uh, just wild to me. Yeah. Uh, because I feel bad if I do anything. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, oh my I know God, I said something wrong. My tone of voice was bad. That person's going to hate me forever. I'm going to get fired. <laughs> CPS is going to take my kids away. Like I just, my brain just go, that's uh, my brain just goes there. Um, and, uh, the Phoenix history was really interesting yeah. about this case. Yeah. Um, I thought so too. I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. So now we are going to get in how not to get murdered. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. So um, while we were at CrimeCon, we met a true crime pod pal. And forgive me because I can't remember his name. But he basically was telling us about how he has to interview people sometimes for his podcast. And he has to interview some real shady characters. And rather than carrying around an actual weapon or a gun, he just carries a Harry Potter magic wand. (laughs) I love this story so much. And he was like, me and our jaws were on the floor like, that's it. <laughs> he was like, yeah, because then people think he's crazy and people don't fuck with you when they think you are crazy. Yeah. It's just not worth the trouble. So kids get a Harry Potter one. That's all I'm going to say. That's and that's that's the tip. Yeah, I fucking love that story. <laughs> he yeah. was cracking me up, but he was serious. He was serious. A hundred percent. And I am not mad at it. I'm going to use it. I like yeah, it. yeah. I love it. I have also heard, uh, like, if somebody attacks you, like a rapist, uh huh. If, if you act crazy, then uh, sometimes that turns them off and they go away. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
it, it, it just seems like, right, like a, a person committing a crime is generally trying to, it has to be convenient, not convenient, but right. if, if it's too hard, if it's you'll too just move much on to trouble, the next person. Yeah, they yeah. just leave. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, that's the hope anyway. <laughs> that's your fingers crossed. Um, but yeah, I think that's a good, that's an easy one to remember. Just, yeah. Yeah. You know, just act crazy. <laughs> so <laughs> now we are going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content about or by any marginalized, othered or underrepresented folks or any true crime goodies. Um, so I got ear hustle does it again. They interviewed Leslie, who is one of the ladies, one of the oh, ladies, Charles Leslie Manson Van girls. Houghton, yeah. Oh, you know her full name? Yeah, you I know do. her full name. Okay, so they <laughs> they interviewed her and Beth, you would love it. And it oh was really gosh. it it was um during COVID, so they couldn't sit face to face with her. It was over the phone. The episode is titled Home for Me is Really a Memory. It aired on June 9th. And but it what caught my ear was I don't give a fuck about Manson. I'm sorry. But Beth, right. I know that this is this book was captivating for you. The case was captivating. And the same is true for the host, Erlon. She said she was really scared when the case happened. And she right. read that book and it right. freaked her out. And so too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this woman, Leslie, was like a part of her life, a part of her childhood. And it was an honor for Erlon, the host, uh, or not Erlon, um, Nigel to to meet her so anyway i i was listening to it the whole time like i gotta remember to tell them about this <laughs> yeah uh, definitely i'm gonna check that out yeah, for sure. yeah yeah you should again it's a uh, home for me is really a memory all right so my uh, shout out is the prosecutors podcast Ooh, oh yeah. yes we met yes. they were our neighbors at least yes. alice was yeah this <laughs> is another one we got to know at crime con they were mm -hmm. our next door neighbors on podcast row mm -hmm. and alice was super nice and, Absolutely. Uh, just awesome. Woman of color. Yes. Hello. Asian. She's Asian. Yep. And I have since delved into the podcast and um, it's really interesting. Right on. I go over cases from the point of view of prosecutors, which they are. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've done some deep dives into famous cases, but they also have some entertaining, funny episodes. Like they did one recently on Taylor Swift huh? and a conspiracy theory that she's both a clone and a cyborg. And they prove it <laughs> wow okay yeah so, wow so well, check it out <laughs> okay thank you well i think taylor swift is actually the devil so <laughs> so you're going to love this, I, this story i really do need to listen to this <laughs> yeah you're gonna love it <laughs> so so those again are um ear hustles this specific episode is called home for me is really a memory it aired on june 9th and also the prosecutor's podcast um taylor swift conspiracy theories well can't <laughs> wait thank you so much beth uh this has been fun but that's all for now where can the people find us our website is fruitloopspod.com our facebook page is fruit loops pod and our discussion group is fruit loops pod discussion on facebook we are also on twitter and instagram at fruit loops pod and links to our sources will be in our footnotes if you want to support the show you can send us a donation on the cash app just google fruit loops pod cash app or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page this will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting there's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website that's correct what everything beth said you could believe her now <laughs> this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every thursday so until next time look alive y'all it's crazy out there 
detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Clueless.